Hi, I'm Victoria Starek Samolin, co-founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, the new foreign affairs think tank based in the heart of London. And this is Geostrategy 360, our weekly podcast which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people and experts. Alliance politics is a regular headline grabber. When a possible military crisis involving Russia, North Korea or China rears its head, leaders and citizens alike raise concerns over the willingness of US and allies to stand together. This is an excerpt from the newest book written by Dr. Alexander Lanoska, one of our associate fellows, called Military Alliances in the 21st Century. And today, Europe is certainly dealing not with a possible military crisis involving Russia, but with a full-scale war waged against Ukraine by the Russian regime, which has not only put on alert NATO and mobilized its allies, but also encouraged certain countries such as Finland and Sweden to reconsider their position uh, as NATO-enhanced opportunity partners to becoming full-fledged allies. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have an opportunity to discuss these issues and these topics with our Associate Fellow, Alexander Lanoska, who is Ennis Bevan Associate Fellow in Euro-Atlantic Geopolitics at the Council on Geostrategy and also an Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Waterloo and the Balsillie School of International Affairs in Waterloo, Canada. In addition to his current roles, he has previously taught at City University of London and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Dickey Centre for International Understanding at Dartmouth College. Dr. Lanoska has also worked for the United States Department of Defence and has consulted for Global Affairs Canada. Alex, welcome to today's episode of Geostrategy 360 and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start with a basic question. Um... When we talk about NATO, how, in your view, has this renewed war in Ukraine changed NATO over the recent weeks? I think it's fair to say that the grand war that Russia has launched in mass uh, since February 24th against Ukraine has reinvigorated the alliance. Of course, NATO has seen greater unity and more cohesion than perhaps what was the case prior to 2014. But what we've seen certainly has been a stepwise increase in that cohesion and unity precisely because of the sheer scale of Russia's attack and, of course, the shocking behavior that we're seeing on the part of the Russian armed forces in that country. So in the lead up to the actual uh, invasion of the 24th of February, we've already seen uh, NATO uh, consolidate its position across the eastern flank. We've seen, of course, the United States step up its increased uh, presence in uh, Poland, as well as elsewhere in Europe. We are seeing the formation of new multinational uh, battle groups in countries like Bulgaria, Romania, and Hungary, as well as Slovakia, cases that we didn't really would have expected uh, to necessarily host uh, these sorts of battle groups, even if they're drawing primarily from local forces, precisely because those countries have uh, at least historically uneven relationships with Russia. They're not like the Baltics and Poland, whereby we expect those countries to be sufficiently fearful of Russia that they're going to make these sorts of demands on the part of um, other allies in the alliance. So we have seen a major change in that regard amongst uh, members of NATO, whether 
that unity and cohesion will last remains open to question. Alliance politics is typically one that involves lots of uh, give and take and a lot of controversy. But I think we have to appreciate how much success NATO has had in shoring up defense and deterrence measures in the eastern flank, as well as the individual efforts made by member states to help Ukraine, whether with respect to providing humanitarian assistance, as well as providing military support, albeit in a manner that falls short of directly intervening in that conflict, because of course, uh, NATO countries do not want to fight Russia directly. You touched on many significant shifts, Alex, and maybe let's try to discuss them in a further detail. So, well, NATO has 30 members, and historically there have always been different perceptions of the Russian threat within the alliance in different regions. Naturally, over the years, countries closer to the eastern flank or on the eastern flank have demonstrated more hawkish perceptions and attitude towards Russia, whereas certain countries, for example, in the south of Europe or in the western parts of the alliance, quite often downplayed the threat. Now, which countries, in your view, have stood out and really shifted their approach significantly in recent weeks? I think most countries have shifted their position in light of Russian atrocities and, again, the sheer scale of the Russian attack. Even a country like Italy has changed its tone, so much so that you see the prime minister talk in a way that actually aligns fairly well with some Polish perspectives namely the refusal not to pay um, for Russian energy in, in rubles um, and, and so forth and so forth. Germany too has shifted somewhat with respect to its um, announced uh, intent to spend much more on defense. However, owing to the peculiarities of German domestic politics, uh, that change may not be as significant yet precisely because a significant number of German elite do believe that um, much economic disruption has to be avoided. And I have in mind here the dependency that Germany has nurtured over the years with respect to its intake of Russian nat um, natural gas. And even just today on the 7th of April, it seems that the newly announced sanctions against co uh, Russian coal will not really take an effect until August at the behest of German leaders. They wanted to postpone the imposition of these sanctions, which were criticized for being a little too light anyway, since Russian coal account for about $4 billion of trade on an annual basis. So we do observe these shifts. In some cases, like Germany, those shifts might seem pronounced, but I think there's still a lot to be desired. That being said, I would still say that even with respect to Germany, the overarching trend is quite clear. I think in a number of years, it will disinvest itself and disengage itself from the provision of Russian uh, natural gas and energy. Uh, if anything, the future looks very bleak for Russia in terms of its trading relationship with countries like Germany. But of course, that's not neither here or there for those in Ukraine who do want to see Germany to be much more aggressive in cutting those ties to provide much needed military assistance that Germany has been reluctant to provide so far and to stop uh, receiving those amounts of natural gas precisely because of how it rebounds to the benefit of Moscow. There's a lot of money involved here and these in some ways undercut the sanctions that have been imposed on 
Russia. But that being all said, again, I think we should be fairly um, surprised all the same by the scale of unity and cohesion. Of course, there are going to be some countries like Cyprus or uh, which is, um, you know, in the EU or Hungary, which is in both EU and NATO. They have different attitudes, but all, of, all things considered, I think this is a much better situation than what we expected. You touched on the enhanced forward presence um, a couple of moments ago. Following Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, allies have agreed to establish four more multinational battle groups in Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia. And this brings the total number of multinational battle groups to eight, extending all along NATO's eastern flank from the Baltic Sea in the north to the Black Sea in the south. How important is this development? And what are the numbers we are talking about at this stage and perhaps in the future? As I said, these are fairly significant developments because, again, some of these countries are not exactly those with whom you associate uh, having fairly strong anti-Russian views. Bulgaria, during the Cold War, sought under its leadership at the time to be unified even with the Soviet Union. Uh, Hungary has a particular relationship with uh, Moscow, which has obviously been a source of frustration and exasperation with even its closer allies within the European Union and NATO. Slovakia, too, has had a record of anti-Americanism that has um, undermined some aspects of defense cooperation until very recently. Romania, however, has been a a pretty strong candidate for receiving uh, more NATO military assistance precisely because it's Threat assessments uh, align fairly closely with those of Poland and the Baltic countries, all things considered. But it does go to show that there is that shift in threat assessments that we cannot um, ignore, that we have to appreciate. Now, my understanding is that these multinational battle groups are going to look very different from those in Poland and the Baltic countries. The EFP battle groups in Poland and the Baltic countries, at least until 2022, were uh, battalion size, somewhere between 800, 1100 troops. They were multinational in composition. They were led by framework nations, the United States and Poland, Germany and Lithuania, Canada and Latvia, and the United Kingdom and Estonia. It's not entirely clear what is going to happen uh, to date. Um, with respect to those new battle groups in those four new countries that we just discussed. It seems like the military backbone will be provided largely by local forces, unlike what is the case in the Baltic region, where it is the framework nation that provides the military backbone, drawing in elements from contributing countries. It seems like it's going to be a bit in reverse with respect to those four countries. The exception, of course, is Romania, where France will be taking a leadership role But we also have to consider the geographical differences between those four new countries uh, to the um, enhanced forward presence mission, as it were, or enhanced villages of activity, as it's called in Romania, to the EFP in the Baltic countries. There may be much more of an emphasis on air and sea uh, assets than what is the case in the Baltic countries, which is very land-centric. And I I think even in the EFP case in the Baltic countries, the numbers given prior to 2022, like I said, they were battalion size. They're going to be obviously seen as insufficient considering 
the scale of the threat. And already we have been seeing all four framework nations add more forces uh, to those uh, battle groups. What that means elsewhere is up for, uh, up for debate. And I think what we're going to see in the next couple of months is uh, more uh, discussion as to how uh, these forces in Southeastern Europe should be composed, what should be the balance of capabilities, and how different they might look from those in the Baltic littoral region, precisely because those countries sit closer to Ukraine or are on the Black Sea, and therefore would have different needs as such. Alex, you are from Canada, and you are, of course, based in Canada. So tell us a bit more about the perceptions of the war in Ukraine in, in Canada. What steps has our key ally um, taken to assist Ukraine and also to push back against the Russian regime? Canada has been a fairly uh, vocal and active supporter of Ukraine from almost the very beginning when this war started in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the destabilization of Eastern Ukraine. Like the United Kingdom, Canada had a training mission. It was uh, Operation Unifier that trained, I believe, 20, 30,000 Ukrainian armed forces personnel, more or less in the same uh, ballpark figures as what the United Kingdom had trained, has given amounts of, large amounts of uh, non-lethal military assistance, as well as some lethal assistance. The policy sometimes has been a little uneven with respect to Ukraine, especially as this particular phase was coming into focus earlier this calendar year. So there was a decision made in January or earlier February not to provide lethal assistance on the, um, uh, to Ukraine uh, because of stated concerns relating to escalation and the need to have a peaceful negotiation. Why lethal assistance would be a problem in that regard was never sufficiently clear. And indeed, some statements from the deputy prime minister to the effect that Ukraine is in some sort of struggle as uh, between democracy and autocracy just made everything a lot more confusing. But with Ukraine being clearly the, uh, a victim of a major Russian onslaught, uh, Canada has stepped up its assistance, it has promised a lot of economic aid, has provided humanitarian assistance, again, government matches, donations given to the Red Cross expressly for uh, the events in Ukraine. Still, there is much more to be desired. There has been flows of military aid coming in. In fact, the uh, Canadian Defense Minister announced the other day somewhat cryptically that a million pounds of military assistance was given to Ukraine over the course of the last month or so. But unlike almost all NATO countries or EU countries, Canada has yet to expel uh, embassy staff uh, belonging to Russia. Uh, there have been calls for uh, Canada to expel the Russian ambassador to Canada, Oleg Skrenko, if I heard call correctly, Stepanov, pardon me, uh, and uh, some staff uh, suspected of espionage links. Canada is one of the very few countries that has not done those sorts of symbolic actions. The other countries being Hungary, uh, Malta, and Cyprus. Very odd company. Uh, for Canada to have at this present stage. These, again, are symbolic gestures, but it does seem out of step so far with what we're seeing. And the stated reason get, uh, for 
uh, not engaging in this sorts of democrat uh, diplomatic expulsions has been to preserve a so-called window into Russia and to maintain some sort of maintain some sort of diplomatic presence in Moscow because I think the fear is that an expulsion of Russian uh, Russian diplomats would mean a full-on expulsion of Canadian diplomats. I don't buy it, but that is the stated reason. So a lot of good news from Canada to wrap up, but there's still some aspects of Canadian decision-making that leave a little bit to be desired. There are also um, some interesting and very positive developments happening um, in Northern Europe. So Russia warned before Finland to stay out of NATO and well, as as late as in February and also over the course of recent weeks, uh, threatened it that there will be serious military and political consequences should Finland decide to join the alliance. Now, yet that apparently has not deterred Finland at all from wanting to join. And we know that a poll last week showed 61% of Finns in favor of joining the alliance. Now, first of all, Alex, why has Finland been so reluctant to join the alliance before? And secondly, how do you evaluate the shift in Finnish attitude? Finland is a very interesting case from the perspective of alliance politics. After all, despite its record of non-alignment for a number of historical or geopolitical reasons, it has actually been stepping up its cooperation with NATO or NATO countries in the decades since the Cold War ended. It has, after all, been buying much more military equipment from NATO countries, not the least of which the F-35 purchase undertaken by Finland late last year making the president of the United States, Joseph Biden, say that this would inaugurate a new phase in bilateral relations between Finland and the United States. Finland has also contributed forces to operations as far afield as in Afghanistan. Finland has been in uh, regular consultations to some degree with uh, NATO countries, whether it is through NATO itself or through plurilateral or minilateral platforms like Nordefco, which is an initiative bringing together Northern European countries in the security area. So Finland is actually doing quite a bit with respect to its defense cooperation with NATO or NATO countries already. You can even argue that Finland is doing more with NATO being outside of NATO than some formal allies in other security arrangements. For example, China and North Korea, which have a formal treaty but do very little together. They don't exercise together, whereas Finland, as a matter of fact, has exercised and has contributed uh, to the more recent cold response uh, 2022 exercises hosted by Norway uh, this year. Sweden is actually very much the same way, although I think what is unique about Finland is precisely because it has that longer border and history of uh, being under Soviet domination during the Cold War, albeit in a way that was very different from elsewhere in the Soviet bloc, that I think has raised uh, concerns in a way that has pushed that country to seek closer and closer ties with NATO, so much so that we are starting to see uh, majorities in public opinion surveys to the effect that the Finns do want to see uh, membership, if not even closer relations. So to answer your question really directly, I think we're seeing a lot of substantial military cooperation between Finland and NATO in a way that I think should make us cool of any rhetoric suggesting that 
NATO membership for Finland will be a game changer. At least it won't be with respect to the more practical dimension. Of course, Finland would gain access to uh, the North Atlantic Council or uh, other bodies within NATO. It would receive an Article 5 commitment. I can't um, overstate how important that would be. But practically, I think it might be actually much less than people think. I do believe, though, its significance for Finland would be primarily with respect to how it has conceived itself so far in terms of its identity and how that um, maps on to how it thinks about its national uh, security strategy. So the difference really is probably much more, dare I say, ontological than practical. But the, the core of it is that, of course, Finland joining NATO would still be a massive development and obviously would demonstrate that uh, Putin's foreign policy has been a complete failure in terms of preventing uh, NATO from consolidating, consolidating itself. A poll in February conducted in Sweden also found that 41% of Swedes favored joining against 35% who opposed it, which was also the first time more Swedes were in favor than against of uh, a membership in the alliance. Once again, um, why the country has been so reluctant to join before and how significant is this shift? I think it's the same reason as what I just said with respect to Finland. Sweden has been stepping up its defense cooperation with NATO and NATO countries, much like Finland has. Finland and Sweden started the post-Cold War period having had a very different experience of the Cold War. So Finland was, like I said, under some degree of domination by the Soviet Union. Sweden was non-aligned, but as a matter of fact, even back then, U.S. decision makers believed that the defense of Sweden would be absolutely essential for the defense of the Western alliance. And indeed, there were military arms transfers uh, to reflect that common interest. I think Sweden might actually have an even stronger attachment to its identity as being non-aligned, notwithstanding that, like Finland, it has expanded its defense cooperation with uh, NATO and NATO countries. I do think, though, that Finland is probably moving further along in terms of its mentality and its threat perceptions of Russia than Sweden has. And indeed, in Sweden, we are seeing um, uh, national elections coming up uh, later this year. There will be elections in Finland soon, but they'll be happening sooner in Sweden. So that might actually be constraining some of the conversation right now. But again, what I would just underline here is that the practical benefits of NATO membership might not be as significant as we might think, precisely because they do have access to some institutions of NATO. They do have uh, a wide variety of different avenues of defense cooperation, already quite active uh, with NATO and NATO countries. In fact, uh, they have been involved in regular consultations with respect to the war in Ukraine. They have been in closer talks with NATO countries. So they're doing a lot already, despite their official status as being outside of the alliance. Uh, they are, of course, enhanced opportunities partners. So they have some status, but they're not official uh, formal allies as of yet. And yet, I think they would still benefit from a lot of the military support uh, that uh, might actually come with uh, alliances more normally, precisely because they're seen as fairly uh, critical for the security of the Baltic region and for European security architecture more generally. 
Alex, before the start of our conversation, I quoted um, your newest book, which is called Military Alliances in the 21st Century. And obviously, well, it could not be a more timely book, I suppose. Um, so tell us a bit more about it. Um, what can we learn from it? So I wrote this book because I felt like there was a, a fairly big gap in our understandings of alliance politics. There's been a lot of literature that has emerged in the disciplines of history and political science in the last 25 years that tackles various aspects of alliance management. But those books or articles would simply look at an aspect of alliance politics, how an alliance would come into formation, how an alliance might even end, how might coalition partners fight together, how might they distribute the um, burden that they might have with respect to defense expenditures. What was missing, I felt, was a book that brought all these sorts of arguments together. And so my aspiration for this book was to synthesize the state of the art in terms of the literature, how much do we know, what has been accumulated in terms of knowledge, to advance new arguments in light of that literature, arguments that challenge pieces of the conventional wisdom that we might have about the operation of these security arrangements and to hopefully inspire new research so that we can have an even better understanding of military alliances going forward. I suppose the bumper sticker line that I would give about military alliances, which could be very unsatisfactory to listeners or to readers for that matter, is that these are extremely difficult organizations to manage and as such they are often defy intuitive or easy understandings. Usually what happens is we try to break down international politics to uh, focus one or two factors that we think are really important causally, factors that drive events. And we tend to think that alliances are some of those drivers, but alliances themselves are in fact really a composite of different factors themselves. And so that really makes it hard for us to understand exactly what military alliances do, what sort of causal impact that they have in international politics. These are obviously very important organizations, but precisely because of these difficulties, they confound easy explanations. And I guess the policy angle there is that as such, it's, it stands to reason that these are arrangements that will be very difficult to manage. And so as much as we like to criticize our politicians for doing perhaps not as good as a job as we would like in managing Uh, alliance politics. The fact of the matter is that you can be as genuinely interested in transatlantic relations or in smooth alliance uh, management as much as possible, but precisely because these are organiza organizations that deal with existential matters like state survival and comprise members with very different capabilities and interests and priorities, you're going to have a hard time. And what I try to do in that book is try to make sense of how that hard time might come about in all sorts of different ways. Alex, you of course wrote the majority of the book earlier than uh, the most recent tragic developments unfolded um, in Europe, and that was in 2020 and 2021. So if you would have written this book now, what would you have changed? I think one of the more interesting alliance uh, uh, stories to come out of this new phase in Russia's war with Ukraine is actually not so much about NATO, but rather the Collective Security Treaty Organization. I think the story about NATO is re relatively straightforward, at least 
so far. We're seeing an alliance, like we said, that has rallied together, that has now converged on threat perceptions with respect to Russia. We might still have disagreements about issues like Russian uh, natural gas, there might or what ought to be done to help uh, Ukraine fight against uh, Russia. But all things considered, it's not that that interesting from a theoretical perspective. That could have obviously changed as this war drags on and tensions within NATO uh, resurface. I think what's much more interesting is what is happening in the other lines, an alliance that we don't really talk about. And I, I admit that perhaps in my own book, I didn't really discuss it that much at all, precisely because the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a Russian-led uh, military alliance that has such members as Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, and some others, uh, there was just not much going on. And yet in 2022, we saw the CSTO undertake a very limited and successful uh, military intervention in Kazakhstan to suppress the mass protests there and was done so at the invitation of the government in Kazakhstan. And yet, as much as that might have been the heyday of the CSTO, I think what we're seeing is the alliance um, in freefall in terms of the political relationships that compose it. We're seeing Belarus be very reluctant to participate in grand operations. And I think that reluctance has probably forced Russia to withdraw from northern Ukraine. That is not good news for Russia. And indeed, a lot of Belarusian society appears to be very much opposed to the Russian uh, aggression in Ukraine, to say nothing of Belarus's own participation in that war by providing at least a staging ground for Russian troops and uh, Russian missile attacks. <clears throat> I mentioned Kazakhstan. And although it was a beneficiary of a CSTO intervention, Kazakhstan has been very critical of Russia and how it has uh, gone about destabilizing uh, Ukraine since 2014. And indeed, Kazakhstan is moving more and more closely to China under the leadership of its leader, Tokayev. We're seeing uh, Armenia being potentially the target of renewed aggression by Azerbaijan with respect to their territorial disputes in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, that would put a premium on Russia to do more for Armenia, to defend against such aggression, but precisely because Russia has expended so much of its combat power in Ukraine, it will just not be able to offer that much. And it didn't really offer that much anyway in 2020 when its attention was not as divided uh, as it is now. And indeed, although we're not talking about a military alliance here, the Eurasian Economic Union is going to be under severe uh, uh, duress precisely because of the economic difficulties that Russia will have. And indeed, Russia has already announced that it's going to curb exports of some foodstuffs and other grain supplies to countries belonging to the Eurasian Economic Union. There's some overlap of membership between the CSTO and the EEU. In other words, Russian military leadership or political hegemony in Central Asia or really Eurasia more broadly is going to come under a severe stress and that might have implications down the road for its alliance management. I think its allies are going to be asking hard questions as to whether they really want to hitch their wagon with Russia or whether they should accommodate other countries uh, or whether they should reach out and normalize ties with yet other countries. 
they might not feel that Russia would have their support or that Russia would be able to give support in, say, fighting terrorism in parts of Central Asia. This is going to be very difficult for Russian foreign policy moving forward. And to me, that's a much more interesting story because I tend to think of alliance politics as being very dysfunctional, even in good times. And I think there still are uh, some major dysfunctions within NATO. But precisely because it has rallied together as it has uh, lately, that's, that alliance has become a little less interesting. But the CSTO, however, will become a lot more interesting precisely because of these very conflictual dynamics that I just mentioned. Alex, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation today. And this is GeoStrategy 360, the Council on GeoStrategy podcast, which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people and experts. You can listen to GeoStrategy 360 on all major podcast platforms, and you can find all our podcasts on our website, www.geostrategy.org.uk slash podcasts.